what's going on in the world. We, we see that the, the, the world was a place that was full of violence and corruption. And, and those were the things that God was speaking of that was destroying this world. And so he judged the world. And as in judgment of God, we see that what he did do was not throw lightning bolts and, and all that sort of stuff. But there's this almost withdrawal that happens. That's what happened with Adam and Eve as they were uh, asked to leave the garden and they went out from the ordered part of creation. Our sculpture over here uh, shows that there's a, a chaotic or a whole heap of activity on the outside and in the middle, it's looking a bit wonky now, but in the middle is this sort of, for the most part, it's this place of order. There's a shape there. And so that's representing Eden, what Eden was. And outside of that, the world gets more and more chaotic, more and more disordered. And so as Adam and Eve were pushed out of the garden because of sin, they went out into the disorder and they had to start again. And the judgment of God was this withdrawal. They were still cared for and loved, but they had to try and make the world work in a place where it wasn't designed to work. And so what the flood is, is a progression of that. The world kind of is in this state of violence and corruption, the Bible tells us. And so what God does is sort of steps back and allows the chaos to do what the chaos does. And as was the big fear for people in the ancient Near Eastern world, the chaos that was in the ocean, this creature that was in the ocean, came and over, overcame them all and swamped them and flooded, um, flooded the, the, the earth, I guess you could say. I had a little look at that, uh, and I kind of concluded for me uh, that I didn't think it was a global flood. I thought it was a more regional flood. Uh, there's good scientific evidence that can uh, accurately prove that there was uh, a, a sort of large regional flood that did a lot of damage. Um, there's less scientific evidence for a global flood, but if you believe that, that's completely fine. We don't have to agree on everything. We're, we're good to have disagreements about some things. So this flood has wiped everything out and then Noah and his family and the remnants of animals that are on the ark, they have a task to do. And their task is to begin again. Their task is to take the disorder and to create order again. We see the Genesis story repeating itself again and again and again and again as we go through. And as you read scripture, once you start to look, you can see there are patterns that are repeating themselves again and again and again, because the themes within our own lives and the themes within our own stories tend to be themes that have a repetitive nature to them. <coughs> so we're going to uh, open up our Bibles. If you have yours, please feel free to turn. Uh, Genesis chapter 9, if you're using a device, please feel free. Otherwise, it will be up on the screen. So the book of Genesis chapter 9, and we're going to have a look at verses 1 to 3, and Zoe's going to read that for us now. To Genesis 9, verses 1 to 3, God's covenant with Noah. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth and on all the birds of the sky, on every creature that moves along the ground and on all the fish in the sea, they are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. So post-flood, 
Noah and his family are, are out of the boat and they're setting up life again. And now God is speaking to Noah and the new call or the new challenge, uh, the new mandate has been set by God to Noah. And you can see that there are some very similar words being used. Um, by God blessing Noah and saying, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. This was what God spoke to Adam and to Eve uh, at the beginning of creation. He said that your role is to care for the planet, to name the animals and to be fruitful and increase in number to populate the earth. So we've got that call that was given to Adam and Eve is now being given to Noah and to his extended family. So we've got this beginning again process. And whereas in the beginning they were allowed to eat only uh, trees and only eat fruit and things like that, they were vegetarian by nature, um, now God has said to them, now that you're uh, post-flood, you're now able to eat animals. So that means that their diet changed and the way that they lived was going to change. So there's a whole heap of different things that are going on in the world and in the planet post the flood. Chapter 9, verses 4 to 7. Take it away, Zoe. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each human being too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number, multiply on the earth and increase upon it. So we've now got God's second mandate and we see uh, I've underlined the start and the finish of this section. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. But here we see that they're able to eat animals, but there's a caveat involved. And we start to see there's a few of those now. This lifeblood, the idea of blood was in the ancient Near East, uh, people worshipped blood because they believed that life was in blood. So God's saying to them, don't set yourselves up to worship what you think is life. Uh, worship me instead because life actually does come from me. But he's saying to them there, you've got to be uh, aware of that tendency in you to head down that road. Also, what we start to see now is that there is this care that has to be implemented by uh, humanity on behalf of the animals. Um, we start to see that there was a practice in the ancient Near East where because of the lack of refrigeration, what would happen was some people would start to butcher an animal, start to kill an animal and only take parts of it and keep it alive for days and days and days and days, this animal, as they would use it for food. And what God is saying to them is that's a cruel and unkind practice. It's not something that you're able to do. The idea is that you take an animal if you're going to eat it and you take its life as quickly and humanely and painlessly as possible. You drain it of its blood, you kill it completely and that way the animal's not living in this sustained excruciating agony for days and days and days. There is an order that is being put in place. You're able to eat the animals, you're able to use the animals, but you have to care for them. You have to be uh, humane to them, responsible to them, treat them with dignity and respect. So God is saying to this world that things need to change. So if we start having a look at the way the Bible was actually written, when you have a look at Scripture, as it was written in its original 
in its original format. There's no verses and there's no chapters. We have added those in later on. What you had was a scroll or a series of pages that just had one continuous long text on it. So there was no grammar, praise the Lord for that. There was no grammar, there was none of those sorts of things. It was just a big continuous story. And so what the, what the scriptural writers would do is they would write in these special literary styles and those literary styles were to point out that something important was going on. And one of those has taken place in chapter 9. Chapter 9 verse 1 and chapter 9 verse 7 begins and ends this section which is called an inclusio. I like to think of it as a hamburger bun. And what, what it is, is it's the start of something where God says, uh, be fruitful and multiply and look after the earth. And then at the end, he says, be fruitful and multiply and look after the earth. So what we know is that whatever's in the middle is really, really important because it's capped off by these two exact same phrases. And to sum up what we've got in the middle is a respect for life, whether it's human life or whether it's animal life, we're put in this place where now Adam and Eve are able, uh, sorry, Adam and Eve, Noah and his family are able to take up the mantle of Adam and Eve and populate the earth, but they also have got now this burden and responsibility for respecting the life of the earth. They have to care for it, they have to look after it. It's their burden and their responsibility. And as humanity begins to uh, go along its journey and get sort of more and more um, developed, you could even say evolved if you were thinking that way, but as our thinking and our consciousness evolves and what we expect evolves, things begin to change. So you have a look at what God says to Noah and his family about the way that the earth is to be cared for here. And then you have a look at Jesus speaking in Matthew chapter 5. And we see the Sermon on the Mount where his idea for what respect is, is even far bigger than what it was for Noah. This, this idea that uh, we're not only just to not harm people, but our thinking becomes really important. And Jesus' whole Matthew 5 uh, Beatitudes Sermon on the Mount is this idea that how you think is really important. How you view people will ultimately affect how you treat them. And so we've got this kind of evolution of thinking, this maturity of thinking as our story goes on and on and on. We've seen it happen in rapid succession, haven't we, with the, the Me Too movement. So now we've got uh, this kind of movement, we've got this structure for people who are in positions of less power who are now able to stand up and speak out against people who use their power and their authority poorly. Whereas before there was no real uh, capacity for people to do that, there was no structure for them to do it. Now we have Me Too. And now if you have a place of authority, if you have a place of power, the expectations on you now are growing and growing and growing. Not only for you to, <coughs> excuse me, not only for you to not do the wrong thing, but now there's this, this sort of uh, thinking that even if you set things up where you're using your power disrespectfully, there's now a platform and a mechanism for people to point you out and say, this person is doing the wrong thing with their power. This is the human story where we're slowly, slowly, slowly evolving, hopefully, and growing to a point where we can treat each other as God calls us to treat each other. 
could even say that we're trying to get back to what was Genesis 1 and 2, the way that we were called to treat each other with dignity and respect. And God says to Noah, this is going to be the mark of what life will be like in the world now. The post-flood world will be a place of respect a place where you populate the planet, a place where you, you explode in numbers, but you have to do that exploding in numbers within the context of respecting the life of this planet. And so that's the way that it's set up for us now. This is our mandate, that we are called to, to grow our families and to grow the population, absolutely. But our, our responsibility is to do that within the confines of respecting this world, respecting this planet, respecting our natural resources, and respecting other human beings. If the way that we live disrespects another, then the Scripture's calling us very clearly that there's something wrong in our thinking. And the call to us is one of repentance. The call to us is one of, of moving towards a greater sense of equality. That's what God's call was for Noah as they stepped out of the, of the ark and began life again. Genesis chapter 9 verses 8 to 11. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. So now we have the promises. Now we have the covenants. This is sort of a contract, but even more, because a, a covenant outsteps a contract in that there's not only just this, this is what I'll do, but there's a spirit behind it. There's a, a respect behind it for both parties. And God now steps in and says to Noah, uh, what happened with the flood will not happen again. I will not step back. I will not judge the world in the way that I have done just now. That will not happen again. You can imagine the thinking with Noah and his family and the other people on the planet, how frightened they would have been of a flood happening again. You can imagine that their thinking would have been small and narrow and they would have been scared because what if it all comes in around us again and what if we're in that position once again? And God says to him, that will not happen. I promise you that that will not happen. No matter what happens, I will not flood the earth again. That will not go on again. I will use my power as God in the way that I am asking you, Noah, and your people to use your power that you have as human beings. I'm going to promise you that that will not go on again. So we have this beginning of this respect that God has not only for humanity, but for the creation as well, saying that that will not happen again so we have been given the animals to eat we have to care for them and we also have to start to care for each other because God speaks about us not being able to disrespect each other not being able to keep on killing if someone hurts you you can hurt them back I know that sounds like a bit of a we think about that now in in the modern times and we think that that's sort of wrong but back then that was a, a cap it was an end because what was going on before is if somebody was injured or you hurt somebody, then you would go to their village or their people and just murder like crazy. It was just this unending thing and there was bloodshed everywhere. But now there's an end to it. God says, what they did, you can do. And then Matthew 5, Jesus says, no, uh, 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 uh. 
when someone hurts you now, you've got to turn the other cheek. When someone hurts you now, you can't go off and leave them. The call now is to step back into that person who hurts us and love them. It's a really, it's this big uh, evolving thought about what it means for us to reflect something of who God is. Now we're going to get into some rainbows. So the, 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 uh, the earth has now gone through this flood and now God has made his promise and now we're going to start talking about the rainbows and what the rainbows actually mean. Thanks, Zoe. I have set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and my rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So I was looking into this whole rainbow thing and thought well, what's what's the kind of point of the rainbow what's he doing here but the ancient near eastern thinking a, a writer called Derek Kinnear he speaks about this for paragraphs and paragraphs and paragraphs and what he says was that in ancient near eastern thinking the rainbow was not perceived as this symbol of inclusion and there wasn't you know a leprechaun and pots of gold at the end of the rainbow and people didn't look at a rainbow and go oh that's beautiful now, we know it's light refracting and, and all that sort of stuff and water. And, but what the, the ancient Near Eastern people thought was when they saw the rainbow in the sky, they believed that that was the bow, as in a bow and arrow. That was the bow of the gods because whenever you saw a rainbow, that always meant there was a storm. And so the, 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 the bow of the gods was there and the arrows was the lightning. So for the people in the ancient Near East, as they started to, to see the, the, the bow and the rainbow, they began to get frightened. And they were frightened because they believed that judgment was coming. You can read in Psalm 18, 14 and Psalm 7, 12 and also Habakkuk, there's this idea that these, the, the lightning and the thunder are arrows from God, is judgment from God. And when they see it, everybody was frightened, especially if you had some sense of what the flood was and what it did and you were involved in it in some way. When you saw the rainbow, the terror would come because we're being judged again. What God does and the incredible nature of what he does here is he says there's this symbol, this idea of what everybody has is this fear of this rainbow and this judgment that's going to come. And what he does is he takes that symbol of terror and fear and God inverts it. And he says, instead of it being something that brings fear about in you, instead of it being something that makes you frightened and scared, the rainbow will now serve as a reminder of my love for you, my commitment to you, my commitment to never flooding the earth again, my commitment of being present with you, my commitment of ensuring that you and humanity survives. The rainbow is now a symbol of hope and peace and love. Whereas to everybody else in the world that was there at the time, the rainbow was a symbol of fear and terror. The rainbow meant that we're going to be judged. Yet for Noah and his people, the rainbow is a symbol of a God who loves them of a God who is committed to them, of a God who moves towards them. 
You start thinking about this and you start to see these things more through the Bible again and again and again and we'll get to the big one at the end. But I thought about life and I thought about how we go through life. You think about those events that have taken place in your life, maybe things that you've done or maybe things that have happened to you that have uh, caused you pain, caused you grief, caused you sorrow. When we look at our life and when we see those events, without Christ, without God, without the hope that He brings, those events, those parts of our lives can be things that cause us shame, things that cause us sorrow and sadness. Yet if we take this idea... excuse me, if we take this idea, we're able to then do what Jesus or do what God did with the rainbow in our own story. Because these parts of our story where we have done the wrong thing or where other people have done the wrong thing to us, these can become the beacons of hope within our story. You listen to someone as they share their testimony and they'll, they'll generally tell you this story of, of them and their own lives and their own thinking and they get to these points where they say, I did this or this happened to me and that rocked my world. And as their story continues, once they, they sort of walk with God, then those things become these moments of hope. These things that once were things that condemned us and that brought shame become these moments, these rock piles, these monuments of the hope and life and love of God. Because all of a sudden we're able to look at what was and now after God has had a part to play in our story, those things now become a monument to his hope and his forgiveness and his love. Just like the rainbow was for these people. We look at what Jesus did on the cross and the cross, we now see the cross as this symbol of hope. We now give people little crosses when they're going through something incredibly difficult and painful because the cross is this representation to us of love and of hope and of sacrifice. That only started coming into being hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years after the crucifixion took place. (coughs) The cross was a symbol of torture. The cross was a symbol of agony and pain. The Roman Empire used the cross as a means of communication, saying to people, if you defy Rome, if you defy our edicts and our beliefs, we will take you and in this public, painful, humiliating and extensive period, you will be put to death and put on public display in front of everybody. The cross was a means of torture and pain. The early church didn't see it as a means of hope. The early church spoke about the resurrection. That's what they spoke about. You read the early church fathers and they almost never speak about the cross. They speak always about the resurrection. In modern terms, we now see the cross as a symbol of hope and life and love. Jesus has done, again, the the meaning has been inverted. But it wasn't like that back then. And the same thing can be for us And for our stories, those events that took place, those things that have hurt us and harmed us, those bad decisions we've made, those poor choices, the silly things that we've done, they can become our monuments of hope. They can become our monuments of resurrection, our monuments of what life can be like. Because God takes our broken life, He takes our broken meaning, and He inverts it, and He fills us full of love. And the brokenness is actually how his love gets inside of us. 
And when His life gets inside of us, we come to life. We find hope. We find the capacity to love our, our, our neighbor, to care about our enemy, to not have to repay evil for evil. The Spirit of God fills us and we are called to live this crazy life of enemy love and repentance. It's a life that turns the world upside down. We see that happening here. This is what the covenant is. This is the genesis of the covenant. Jesus takes it to a whole new realm. And the book of Acts takes it to an incredible new level where we see people are able to stand up and preach boldly and speak the love of God even when they're in prison, even when they're in jail, and even when they're killing other people. This radical change takes place. Genesis of that is here as God puts in place a new way of being. Genesis 9, 20 to 23. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backward and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father naked. The Bible is a crazy book. So the Bible is this book that has this man doing this incredible thing, Noah, and he builds his boat and does it for a long time and, and goes through this flood. And, and you would think that a normal book, you would leave this man in this exalted position. And then we get the last part of the story where Noah grows a vineyard and gets hammered. He gets drunk. He's smashed out of his brain. He's not coherent. He's blacked out. He's wiped out. And he's laying down naked in his tent. The scripture is no respecter of people's reputation, is it? But it's encouraging because we've got this Noah who has this experience and then we've got his brokenness as well. We're not all just good and we're not all just bad, are we? We are a strange old mixture of both. We do glorious good things and then we do dumb and stupid things. Noah's doing a dumb and stupid thing. You could imagine the trauma that he has lived through, the death that he has seen, the sadness and sorrow that he has experienced and he has done something poor to relieve himself of that burden. He's done something poor. And this was not just a decision he made, snap decision. He's had to grow grapes. He's had to tend the grapes. He's had to go through the whole process of making the wine. Um, it's a pretty well thought through thing he's done, isn't it? He's not just driven home and gone, do you know what? Tonight's the night. He's had a really long and slow process. Noah has been a fool. Noah has done the wrong thing. And in this vineyard and what he's done with it, for the people of the time in the ancient Near East, wine was perceived as a gift from the gods. Wine was something that the gods had gifted to humanity. And so Noah has taken this good gift and he's ruined it. He's taken this good gift and he's done something poor with it. Instead of enjoying it and allowing the goodness of it to the taste and all those things to be a part of his life, he's taken it and he's wiped himself out. He's taken himself out of the presence of his people and of his family. Interesting things when we start looking at the language here. So Noah's a man of the soil. Do you remember Adam was not his name? Adam meant man from the ground, man from the earth. And now we've got Noah who's a man of the soil. We've got this again playing out and then we've got this silly thing that happens. We've got the Genesis 3 story playing itself out 
once again. Now, what went on, uh, I don't really understand, but Noah and his son had this huge big fight afterwards. Um, John Walton speaks about this and he says that uh, Ham, which was the, the youngest son, he thinks that uh, this was the straw that broke the camel's back for him. That him coming in and, and seeing his father naked and then bringing his brothers in so they could see him as well uh, sort of highlighted his shame. There's all sorts of theories that go on uh, about what this actually meant. But what we do know is that his brothers came in and they covered their father in some way and they respected him, whereas Ham didn't. And as Ham, as Ham is cursed... Uh, it's interesting to note that these curses are not given to him, they're given to his family. And these curses aren't curses from God, they're curses from Noah to Ham. So they obviously had some tension that went on and Ham goes on to be the father of Cana. And Cana is the place that as Israel comes out from the Exodus and makes their way across the wilderness, they end up in Cana. So we've got a little bit of history there in terms of uh, what went on. 